Medicine and spirituality have always been linked, but as a profession, we have struggled with how to introduce spirituality and religion into the general hospital setting. Our guest today has developed just such a program. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, and with me today is Dr. Mark Gallanter. Dr. Gallanter is professor of psychiatry at NYU, founding director of the Division of Alcoholism and Drug Abuse at NYU, and director of the NYU Fellowship Training Program in Addiction Psychiatry. He is also a division director at NYU's World Health Organization Collaborating Center and director of its National Center for Medical Fellowships in Alcoholism and Drug Abuse. He's also editor of the journal Substance Abuse, the annual book series Recent Developments in Alcoholism, and author of the books Network Therapy for Alcohol and Drug Abuse and Spirituality in the Healthy Mind, Science, Therapy, and the Need for Personal Meaning. Welcome to ReachMD, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm exhausted just reading your introduction. <laughs> but perhaps we should begin with a discussion of spirituality and religion. What's the difference between the two? Well, spirituality, as we define it in our work here at NYU, is what gives people meaning in life and purpose in their lives. It can be achieved through participation in a religion, but it's also broader than that because it can include involvement with family or humanism or the arts. Mm -hmm. And religion is? Religion, on the other hand, has specific religious practices involved and is involved with a specific group that has its own requirements, so it's more structured. But certainly a religious person can be spiritual, and a spiritual person can be religious. Or a person could be spiritual and not religious. That's right. And actually, survey data show that there are, percentage-wise, a larger portion of the American population designates themselves as spiritual than do as religious, per se, mm. although both are much more than a majority. Now, you've recently published a paper on this topic, and in it you talk about doing a spiritual assessment on your patients. Tell us about that. Well, in our training activities, we have seminars in which we show the either residents or medical students examples of how to discuss this issue with patients. And we usually apply four questions, which they can handle however they might, but they're what we'd like people to keep in mind in speaking with patients. For example, they should ask, do you consider yourself a spiritual or religious person? And how's that spirituality important in dealing with your illness? Then if the person gives indication, they can ask if they belong to a spiritual or religious community. And finally, for our patients, We'd like to ask them, if it's appropriate, how they would like us to address this issue of spirituality in their health care. Now, you do this on all patients? Well, this is what can be asked the patients. It really depends a lot on the setting. So, for example, in our more extensive uh, psychiatric evaluations for long-term treatment, all these questions may be asked. Mm -hmm. But for a brief encounter, say in a primary care clinic, then it may just be one question, like, do you consider spirituality important in terms of your treatment here? Sometimes we get a surprising answer that it's very important, and other times the patient is just 
not oriented that way. For the people that aren't oriented that way, does it feel intrusive to them? Are they insulted that you would ask such things? People will generally just pass it by if they don't think it's relevant, as long as it's not presented in a uh, pointed or pressing way. So if there doesn't seem to be any agenda from the clinician. Right. And actually, the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospital Organizations that certifies almost all hospitals in America requires some knowledge of the patient's religious or spiritual orientation. Mm -hmm. Usually, that's just done very much in passing, and usually it's not taken beyond, say, a social worker asking a patient, do you belong to some religious denomination? But the issue can be considered more broadly than that, and if the patient is really interested in it, then it can be discussed in terms of their care. Now, you and your colleagues have developed a pilot program at NYU to evaluate whether patients would engage their spiritual resources to enhance their medical recovery. Tell us about that program. Well, what we found was that in our surveys, in fact, published data of ours, that patients were much more oriented towards spirituality in terms of what was important to them in recovery from illness than the medical and nursing staff thought they would be. So that's when we decided to pursue this issue further. And more recently, over the last few years, we've had groups on our patient units where patients can come, if they choose to, to discuss spirituality in relation to their illness and recovery. And we have them on a number of different units. We have one in primary care, We have a few on inpatient psychiatry, and we also have some on outpatient psychiatry. So much of it is oriented towards the psychiatric units, but we also do have that in the primary care clinic. And the groups run for an hour on a weekly basis, and patients will often discuss a particular topic like gratitude or forgiveness and how it may apply to their own current situation and and treatment, and how they feel about the medical care. Often in a group, patients may be given time to meditate for a few minutes in order to just collect their thoughts. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Mark Gallanter of NYU. We are discussing incorporating spirituality into medical care. Mark, I can see how that easily an hour a week of group could fit into a psychiatry program, but I'm having a hard time how to figure out the logistics of doing that on a medical unit. Well, this we do actually in the outpatient medical clinic, and it actually was hard to set up because patients were often waiting for appointments and concerned that they might miss a call for their appointment. But we do that right adjacent to the waiting area. And initially, some patients would come in while they were waiting to see their primary care physician. And now some of the patients come at that regularly scheduled time even if they don't have a medical appointment. Now, how successful is this program? And I guess to answer that question, we need to know how you measure success. Well, at this point, actually, we're hoping to get funding for a more quantitative measurement of success. But the patients who come, come repeatedly and are very pleased to be there. And it's 
their choice to come, and the medical director and director of the hospital, as well as staff around the hospital, are very positive about this because they do feel it gives patients an opportunity, if they choose to, to be involved in something that allows them to identify more comfortably with a very large institution that they may often feel to be very impersonal. And who actually runs the group? Is it a psychiatrist or a chaplain or a social worker? Well, we have different people running the groups, actually. And we have some residents in psychiatry. We also have a social worker and a nurse and one woman who has both nursing and chaplaincy training. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend for others, based on your experience so far, others who may want to begin a similar program in their hospitals or clinics? Well, I think that someone who's interested in this should ask uh, general staff if they'd be interested in running something like this or if they think it's relevant. That's how we started out at one general administrative staff meeting of the hospital and found that there were a sizable number of people who were interested. And then if there are somebody or some people on staff who are interested in running a group like this, then patients on whatever unit can be told that it's available at that time and they can come if they choose to. Is there any sort of uh, manual that others could get a hold of explaining what you've done so far? Well, at present, the best information is available both in the article that we published in the journal Primary Psychiatry in this September issue and in a book that I wrote called Spirituality and the Healthy Mind. And that latter one's available, say, in Amazon or directly through the publisher, Oxford University Press. And the Primary Psychiatry Journal is available online as well at uh, www.primarypsychiatry.com. And you don't need to be a paid subscriber to be able to access it for those listening. Any final thoughts, Mark, about this topic of spirituality integrated into medical care? Well, what I would say is that initially it was because of the patient's interest that we thought that this was worth doing. But we found that there's more interest around the hospital among staff than one might think. And people tend not to talk about this because they don't feel that it's thought to be part of medical care. But when you give people a chance to talk about it, you find that there are often many whom you wouldn't suspect who feel this is very important. So I think the important issue is to open this up for discussion and who's interested. You know, it'd be interesting as you measure success in the program to look perhaps at provider burnout as one of the parameters. Maybe that might be affected as well. Well, I'll tell you, we have actually one group in a forensic unit where patients are referred for psychiatric problems from the local city prison, Rikers Island. And staff there have a very tough time but they find this to be an opportunity to to run a group like this. So you can sometimes lighten the burden, even in the most difficult of settings. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. It's my pleasure. We've been speaking with psychiatrist Dr. Mark Gallanter about incorporating spirituality into medical practice. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and downloadable podcast, 
Visit our website at www.reachmd.com. You can find this program as well as our entire catalog there. Thank you for listening. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. This is Dr. Mark Nolan Hill. This week we will be speaking with Dr. Jamie Hutchison at the University of Toronto. We will be talking about logistics of providing hypothermia treatment for traumatic brain injury. I'm Dr. Kathleen Mergel, and join me this week when my guest will be Stephen Lewis, co-director of AIDS-Free World. We will discuss his organization's efforts to promote the demise of HIV-AIDS. And I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. Join me this week, and I'll be speaking with Dr. David Morens, who is a senior advisor to the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases of the National Institutes of Health. We're going to be talking about dengue fever. Download complete program information, live streaming, on-demand podcasts, and free CME at ReachMD.com. ReachMD, online, on-demand, and on-air at XM160, 